Praise the Lord for that promise. I mentioned it last week. We're going to begin a new series today. I've titled it, How God Changes His Children. That's the series title, and today's message is Change is Coming. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 and 2, if you'd like to read with me, we'll read together. Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. I got a call, I think it was the first of this year, from a boy that I graduated with and played ball with, Richard Duncan, and he was trying to get together a class reunion for our class 50 years next year. We graduated in 74, so 2024, he wanted me to work on the committee. I hadn't, I didn't do it. I'm not good at that kind of stuff. But I'll be there, I think, Lord willing. I've done the funeral of a lot of my classmates. I've heard of many others that have died that different cities and different places. Uh, if, we go, if I go to this funeral, if I make it that, not funeral, but that uh, reunion, <laughs> it might be a funeral, I don't know. I will see some people there that I haven't seen in 50 years. There's a lot of things can change in 50 years. You know that? Uh, some will have lost their hair. I'm thankful I have not. Uh, <laughs> be careful, y'all. I'm praying for y'all. We're going to be laughing. Some were 140 pounds in high school, and they may be 240 pounds this time. Some might look like they're 78 to 80, and some may look like they're 48 to 50. Some will have been on their second or third marriage. Some will have lived a hard life. Some uh, were very smart in school but didn't do much with their life. And some barely made it through school, and now they're living the high life. Some will have been walking with Jesus for these 50 years, and some of them hadn't thought about Jesus in 50 years. You never know how people have changed over the years. Keith told you earlier that uh, Kyle and Stephanie had their little baby, little Silas. I say little, <laughs> almost nine pounds. Uh, but I was reading this. There will be a lot of changes here in the next two years. From birth to six weeks, you average change in a baby diaper 10 times a day. So for those six weeks, that's 420 times. From week 7 to 16, you average changing it 7 to 10 times a day. So that's another 637 times in that period. From 17 to 30 weeks, you'll average changing 5 to 7 times a day. So that's another 595 times. And from 31 weeks to one year, you'll average about five times a day, another 805 
changes. And that's through the first year. They said the average baby is potty trained, average about 27 months. So sometime between one and a half, two and a half years, they'll be potty trained. So over that time, you're liable to change that baby's diaper between three and 4,000 times. That's a lot of changes. Old Jeff Foxworthy, the, the comedian, he said he went one time when he had his first child, he went to the store and he saw the pampers, and it said six to 12 pounds. He said, that's a lie. That diaper does not hold six to 12 pounds. He said, I tried it, and it just will not hold that much. Anyway, anything to get out of changing them. Uh, <clears throat> here's something else that changes over time. Your body shape changes as you age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't avoid some changes, but your lifestyle choices may slow or spread or speed up the process. Here's what they said. The amount of body fat goes up steadily after age 30. Older people may have almost a third more fat compared to when they were younger. The tendency to become shorter occurs among all races. You lose about a half inch every 10 years after the age of 40. I have to get my platform shoes back out. Uh, height loss is even more rapid after age 70. You may lose one to three inches in height as you age. Uh, wow. Body weight changes. Men often gain weight until about age 55. Now, that's a lie. Uh, I blew that. And then you start losing it uh, because you lose testosterone. Women tend to gain weight until age 65 and then begin to lose it. Weight loss is because fat is replacing muscle tissue and fat weighs less than muscle. A lot of changes ahead. Um, thank God that we have four seasons. Now, we don't have them as drastically here in Florida as you're going up the country two or three or four hundred miles or better they have the four seasons more drastically but we're thankful for winter spring summer and fall I'm glad aren't you just just to get a break a little different there's a lot of changes in our nation a great political divide uh, you know here's what statistics say after the age of 45 people get much more conservative Anyone under 30 that's not a liberal has no heart. Anyone over 30 who is not a conservative has no brain. Uh, I'll, say, I'll say amen to that. Women, I've always been told this, women marry men thinking that they can change them. They can't. <clears throat> men marry women thinking they will not change. They do. Uh, change is all around us. Except God doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're going to talk about change. God not only wants to change us, He wants to change us throughout our life. He's done a work for us on Calvary, but for the rest of our life, He's going to be doing a work in us. I pray He will anyway, changing us into His image. There was a guy that was a sculptor that took a big rock and just chipped away at it. It had a beautiful uh, statue of a lion. And somebody looked at it and said, that is just amazing. You have a gift to do that. How do you take a rock and chisel into something beautiful like a lion? He said, it's very easy. I chip away everything that doesn't look like a lion. And uh, that's the way God works on us. He's chipping away everything that doesn't look like Jesus Christ. So we're formed and fashioned into the image of Christ. 
So this new series we're going to begin today is how does God do that? How does God change us? Uh, what are his tools that he uses to bring changes in our life more like Jesus Christ? So that's what this series will be about. God wants to change us is the first point. Let's look at the church at Philippi before we look in the Philippians here. Paul was on his second missionary journey. <clears throat> he was going around to visit the churches again that he had established in his first journey. And when you come to Acts chapter 16, Paul's ready to go east into Asia Minor and on back that way. And God said no. God began to close the doors. That'd be a good series right there. What do you do when you want to go one way and God says, I want you to go, I want you to go this way? God wanted him to go west, and he got a vision of a guy from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us, and he responded to the vision, he took off west, and the gospel headed west, came this way, thank God for that, uh, and anyway, he got into Greece, the first town, the first city he came to was Philippi, and he met some women, with Lydia and some other ladies that were down by the riverside worshiping the Lord. And that's really where that church at Philippi started, from that little group of worshipers down by the riverside. Well, Paul's writing back to them ten years later. Uh, he's in prison. He's just, he had two prison terms in Rome. First prison term, he wrote Philippians and some other prison epistles. The second time he went to prison in Rome, he wasn't coming out. That's when he wrote Second Timothy, and his days were numbered then. But on this one... He wrote back, so this is about 10 years after he founded this church. He's writing back to them. Here's what was taking place. The church was concerned about Paul in prison, so they sent one of their members, a guy named Epaphroditus, to go check on Paul, see how he's doing. And so he made the long trip to go see how Paul was doing. And when he met Paul, he saw Paul's situation. He began to do a lot of work. Paul said he worked himself almost to death. But he told Paul, this is what's going on in our church. And so Paul's letter to the Philippians is his response carried back to the church by Epaphroditus addressing the problems and the issues that were going on in the church at Philippi. And that's what this letter is about. Now, the Word declares, and this passage is going to be declaring, that God wants to change us. Uh, there used to be an old saying, God welcomes you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And I believe that with all my heart. God changes us instantly when we're born again. The Bible says old things pass away and all things become new. When your heart's transformed by Jesus Christ, by receiving him, by repenting and, and putting your trust in him, he changes your heart. He takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. And so there's an immediate change, right? You become a child of God. Your sins are washed away. You write your name in the book of life. You've passed from death unto life. You've come out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's been a change. And if you don't have some kind of change when you've been born again, you really need to question that. There should be some change that takes place when you give your heart to Jesus. But that's not all the changing that's going to be taking place over your lifetime. That's instant change. You know, we like instant coffee and instant grits and instant gratification. But the changing we're going to be talking about is something God's changing us throughout the rest of our life, how he's beginning to shape us. What God does, is, does for us at the beginning is called justification. This is called sanctification. Now, we don't use that term a lot or preach that a lot, but we do preach it a lot, but we just don't think about it. Justification, God's dealing 
with you and he's making you his child, bringing you into his family and he's dealing with the penalty of sin that's hanging over you and over me because we're all sinners and we've, we're condemned and we've got a judgment waiting on us. But whenever he saves us, he removes that penalty that's hanging over our head. When he sanctifies us the rest of our life, he's dealing with the power of sin, not the penalty, but the power of sin that controls our life. He's wanting to change us now and to make us into new creatures and to make us into new beings. And then the final thing is when God just removes us from the presence of sin, that's called glorification, when he changes our body and everything that goes along with it. Here's what God's wanting to change. He wants to change our attitude. He wants to change our actions. He wants to change our hang-ups. He wants to change our habits. He wants to change our talk. He wants to change our walk. He wants to change our ways. He wants to change our will. He wants to change our worship. He wants to change our witness. There's a lot of things that he's wanting to change and shape us. You say, you got scriptures for that? Oh, yeah, I thought you wasn't going to ask. Yes, I've got scriptures for that. Let's look at a few of them. Ezekiel 36, 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Next one. Romans 12, 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He's going to be transforming us. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, that you put off concerning the former conversation or your former lifestyle or conduct, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Next one, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Colossians 3.10 says this, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So God's got a work for us to do, and he's going to do a work in us. Let me tell you this. I don't know exactly the age of a child begins to walk. But we know sometime between year one and two, that little baby will start crawling and then it'll start pulling itself and he's trying to walk, he's trying to keep his balance or she, and they'll fall. They say an average child falls 17 to 20 times a day just trying to learn how to walk. That's okay. We, we understand that. They're trying to walk. Now, if two years later, that child's still stumbling and falling, something not right. Would you say it's not right? If 10 years later, he's still doing that. Something's not right. So our walk is going to change over time, and it's going to change spiritually also. Now, God's working in our lives for change. Let's look at verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul's attitude towards God's work in us now. Paul is 815 miles away from this church at Philippi in prison. It would take him about a month and a half, two months or so to get there. That's how far away he was, and that's how they traveled. Uh, 
But he says this, you have a responsibility to live right whether I'm there or not. Doesn't matter if I'm there in your presence or not. You know, I remember I was, uh, we worked at Maddox Foundry years ago. We were on three days a week, and I, I took a side job as a substitute teacher. I don't recommend that to anybody. Because uh, I remember when I was in school, people, we didn't treat the substitute teachers very well. Because we feel like they didn't know what they were doing or what was going on. We'd tell them what they needed to do and all that. And so uh, I remember doing that. Didn't like that very much. But because they don't seem to pay attention. Uh, and let me say that. Let me give you this illustration. I don't know if your children obey you or not. A lot of people say my children are well behaved. They obey me. When I'm there, they don't, they don't get out of line or do anything. That's not the key. The key is how do they act when you're not there. That's how you can tell if they truly obey you when you're not looking at them, threatening them, got your belt halfway off or whatever. That's, that's what it is. So Paul says right off the bat, whether I'm there with you or not, whether the preacher's there, the Holy Spirit's there. He's with us and he's in us. And he's there all the time. So he said, you ought to always be living your life. Uh, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that scares a lot of people right there. Because a lot of people say, I don't use the word fear. Uh, perfect love casts out fear. God hadn't given us a spirit of fear and all this. We quote all them scriptures. Well, you need to fear God. You need to fear God. The Bible says a lot about the fear of the Lord. And I'm talking about reverential awe and all. That is something we need to have. So he says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Look at Psalm 211. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Remember the old song we sing for Easter? Uh, Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Whatever. Uh, I'm not trying to offend people. I never try to offend people. I don't want to offend God. And so we're, we, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Here's what Paul's saying. He's not saying this. He doesn't say work for your salvation. You can't work for this salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn this uh, we're saved by grace through faith. You know, it's not of ourselves or anything like that. It's not of works in any way, lest any man should boast. You can't work for your salvation. He doesn't, he's not saying here, work to keep your salvation. A lot of people believe you're saved by faith, and then it's how you work from then on out, whether you're going to keep it or not. No, the Bible doesn't teach that either. Uh, it's, it's still by faith, and it's by grace that way. What that phrase means, work out, means this. It's like a phrase talking about, getting minerals out of the ground work out if say this was gold or iron or some kind of diamond something like a mine that you're trying to get minerals out that's what it means get all that you can out of your salvation people ask me all the time these are peanuts out here in this field now in a few weeks or i don't know when they're going to pick them they're going to dig them and then they're going to pick them they're not going to get a hundred percent of them peanuts some of them are going to be left in the ground or fall off. You know, after they dig them and turn them up, and if it starts raining on them and they can't pick them for three or four days, they're going to lose more of them, and it's just harder. But you're not going to get all of them out of there. You want to get as much as you can so you can get the better yield and, and make a better crop and all that kind of stuff, but you're not going to get it all. 
just get all you can. That's what this word work out means, work and get it all that you can out of it. In other words, when we grew up, we liked to eat fish, and we ate brim a lot. Now, a lot of kids, they say, is that fish got bones in it? Yeah, they all have bones in them. But brim especially have bones because they ain't big enough to fillet a lot of them. And so you had to learn how to pull that dorsal fin off and, and, and eat the meat and slide it over the bones and stuff like that. And us kids, we weren't really good at that. And Daddy would just stand there eating what we didn't eat. He would just say, y'all are wasting enough to feed three people with what y'all eat or leaving behind. Same way with pork chops. We'd eat the majority, then he'd come behind it and clean every little bit off of it. And that's the way it was. And that's really what this, this, this little phrase is. Work out your salvation. Get all the good out of what God's got for you. Allow God to do everything he wants to do in your life. Enjoy what he's provided. Work with what he's given you. Don't waste anything. That's what he's saying. Work out your salvation. Get it all. Get everything that God's got for you as he begins to change you. Second thing is, this is God's attitude toward working in us in verse 13. For it's God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, when it comes to sanctification, there's a lot of different views on this. Some people think God has to do it all in us, and it's all God doing it. Nope. Some think it's all us doing it. Nope. What is happening, God's working things in us, and we're supposed to work them out. God's changing us on the inside, and we're supposed to operate and walk in it and, and, and apply it and so on and so forth. He works in us, we work it out. Uh, he aligns us with his will. He shows us his will. His words, his will, and he shows us things. This is my will for you. And when we see it, we're supposed to walk in it and live in it, and begin to, it begins to change us on the inside. We don't do our own thing. When you live in a way where God's allowed to change you, it brings him great pleasure. You know, your children can bring you great pain or they can bring you great pleasure. They can bring you pain. They can embarrass you. They can disappoint you. They can hurt you. They can, they can do a lot of things that bring pain in your life. Or they can also make you very proud. You love them very much. You're so, you're so amazed at what they can do. And they can bring you a great pleasure. Same way with God's children. If God's not allowed to change us, it brings him a lot of pain. It, it grieves him, grieves the Spirit of God. If he is allowed to do something in us, it brings him great pleasure. Let me show you a couple of scriptures. Luke, fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He enjoys giving you the things that he wants you to have, and he's provided for you. Look at Hebrews 13, 21. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So God's trying to work in us, and I pray that we're bringing him pleasure and not bringing him pain. Now, where does God want to work in us to change us? What are the things he wants to change? If he really wants to do that and it brings him great pleasure, all right, let's look at that. He wants to work on our speaking, verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now, this tongue is a big problem. It's a little thing, but it's a big problem. Uh, James says an unbridled tongue is like a forest fire out of control. It's like poison. 
Everything it touches, it kills and destroys. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said, basically, the tongue is a gauge to show you what's going on in your heart. If you've got tongue problems, you've got heart problems. You've got issues. Now, there's so many sins of the tongue. I've taught on this in years gone by. Criticism, rumors, gossip, swearing, slander, contentious words, nagging, lying, foolish talk, boasting, griping, complaining. Uh, no man can tame it, James says. You can't tame your tongue on your own. God's got to tame it by taming your heart, and then your tongue will follow along with it. So no man can do this by saying, I'm going to do better. I'm not going to say this anymore and all this. It, you'll, you'll show that you can't do it. He mentions two ways our tongues are out of control. Murmuring. Murmuring is just a, uh, another word for griping, complaining. Uh, it's very prevalent in our culture. And let me just, we all like to gripe. I'm going to say some things. And you tell me, if you tend to gripe about this, say, ouch. If you don't, you don't have to say nothing. Anybody here gripe on about long lines that are not moving? High prices. Inconsiderate people. Crying babies that nobody will tend to. Bad drivers. Politicians. <laughs> Bad weather. You can go on and on. We like to gripe. We like to complain. We like to murmur. Mark 20, 11 said the workers griped because they didn't feel like they got what they were owed when it come time to be paid. They got exactly what the, the landowner told them he was going to pay them. But they didn't like it because others didn't work as long and got the same thing. Luke 5, 30, the Pharisees griped because Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. 1 Corinthians 10, 10, they murmured. He says, murmuring is what brought God's judgment on the Israelites in the wilderness. He says, they're griping. God said, I've had all this. I can take. Boom. Miriam griped because Moses was in charge. He said, who left you in charge? God struck her with leprosy. Griping. The next thing he says is disputing, arguing. Another sign of tongue that needs to be changed and need to be cleaned. These are just two things he brings up in this passage. When I say disputing, we're talking about argumentative or contentious tongues. There were people arguing and griping and complaining. I heard a story one time of a pastor. He was kind of mild and mealy, and his wife was just loud and obnoxious. And she was very loud, and he didn't say a word. He was walked on eggshells all the time. And uh, every, she'd tell him she didn't like that sermon. That was sorry. That, was good. that wasn't worth anything. And I mean, just constantly, he just was beat down to nothing. Well, she died. And so... They said, would you want somebody else to do her funeral? He said, no, I'll do it. And uh, so he got up there and he preached her funeral. I went out to the graveside and had the committal statement. Then they had the closing prayer. Right when he said, amen, bam! A clap of lightning hit there and everybody under that tent, he told the audience, he said, well, she's there. <laughs> and then he, uh, <laughs> he said, she didn't like the sermon either, I can tell you that. Anyway. Arguing, we like to argue about things. We like to gripe, we like to argue. Galatians 5.15, what does it say? But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you not be not consumed one another. If you're going to bite each other, you're going to get eat up. That's what he's saying. So he, go, he said, I want to work on your tongue. 
which means he's got to work on our heart to get our tongue. Second thing he wants to work on is not only our speak, speaking, but our shining. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He wants to work on our shining just more than our speaking. Now, he says you're living in a crooked and a perverse generation. How many think we might be living in a crooked and a perverse generation? Same, same generation. The word crooked means bent or warped. The word perverse means depraved. In Noah's day, it said about him, he said man's thoughts or imagination was on evil continually. That's why God said, I've had all this. I'm going to take and he wiped, wiped out all of humanity except Noah and his family. Now, we're living in a dark world. There's three ways you can respond to living in a dark world. Two of them wrong. You can isolate yourself from the world. I'm going to go into a monastery. I'm going to hide behind the church walls, and I ain't going to get there in it. I'm going to isolate myself instead of getting into that darkness. Or you can indulge in this world. Well, this is the world we're given. We're going to have to enjoy it, eat, drink, and be merry. We're going to do what we got to do. No, the third thing you can do is illuminate it. You can stand your ground and let your light shine for Jesus Christ wherever he takes you. Here's what Matthew said in Matthew, uh, the Lord said in Matthew 5, 14. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. I heard one time of a little first or second grade boy he'd, at the store. He'd bought some of these glow sticks. I don't know if you know what those are. They're little things. I think you break them and the gas in there glows. Anyway, he bought a package of glow sticks, was bringing them home, and he had a little brother that's three or four years old, and he was screaming. His mama said, what's the matter with him? He said, he wants one of my glow sticks. She said, well, give him one. He said, no, I'll pay for this with my money. He's not getting one. And the little boy kept screaming. She went and ripped the bag up and said, I'm giving him one. I'm not going to listen to that. And the little boy was so happy he had the glow stick that he wanted. Mama turned around to leave, and the boy jerked it out of his hand and broke it. And his mama went there to fuss at him. She said, why did you do that? He said, Mama, you have to break it for the light to shine. And we've got to be broken sometimes for our light to shine. He said, I'm, I'm concerned God's wanting to change you so you can be a brighter reflection. Here's what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that wherever, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, they'll be able to see, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let your light shine. That's what he wants to do. That's why God's wanting to change us. He, he said, you know, James and John, whenever they were first called, they were ready to call fire down from heaven on people. Peter, he, he was ready to cut somebody. He cut a man's ear off, but he was trying to part his hair right down the middle. He just moved. That's the way we tend to be. But these old boys eventually changed. They were changed over time as God began to work in their life. I learned a new word. I didn't know what it meant. It's a scientific word, albedo. I think of albedo or albedo. That's the amount of sunlight that is reflected off a celestial body. 
In other words, Venus says the planet Venus has the highest albedo. 65% of the light that hits Venus is reflected off of it. In contrast, the moon only reflects 7%. So of the sunlight that hits the moon, only 7%, the rest of it is absorbed, I guess, only 7% is reflected off. But when we've got a full moon out there, there's enough light shining, you can see a little bit, can't you? So even in the darkness of this world, our job is not to be the light. Our job is to reflect his light through us. And that's why we're called the light of the world. So he wants to, wants to change us on our speaking. He wants to change us on our uh, shining or our testimony to this world. And the third thing, he wants to change us on our sharing. Verse 16. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Holding forth the word of life. One day we're going to give an account to God for our life. Paul mentions a couple of things. He said, you're going to stand before God. You're going to have to hold forth God's word. He's going to, we're being upheld by his word. We're going to be judged by his word. Everything. He said, I want you to change because you're going to have to answer to God. And I want to make sure what I've done was not in vain. That's what he's saying. Now, that phrase there, in vain, we need to talk about that just a moment. That comes up a lot in the Bible. Don't do that in vain. Don't, make that, don't waste your time. If it's done in vain, it's a waste of time, pretty much. Give you some, uh, give me, give you some scriptures. Exodus 27, it talks about in the second commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Don't use his name as a filler piece or as a substitute word or anything like that when you're not recognizing him for who he is. Galatians 2.21, here's what it says. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If you could get saved by keeping the law of Moses, he's telling these people who are tempted to go back to that, he said, then Jesus didn't have to come here. We just hang on to that. He said... He would have died and he died in vain if that was the case. Next one, 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you by the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you've received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you've believed in vain. You sure don't want to believe in vain. Next one. How be it, in Mark 7, 7, how be it in vain, they worship me, teaching the, for doctrines the commandments of men. Isn't it a sad thing when religion thinks they're pleasing God? He says, you, you worshiping me in vain. You're wasting your time. Galatians 3, 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? In other words, they've been through a lot, a lot of hardship, a lot of trials, tribulation. You've suffered a lot. Don't let it be in vain. Make sure there's something good coming out. So he mentions in this in Philippians here, he said, I don't want to have run in vain. This is a marathon. We're running a marathon. This isn't a sprint, this Christian life. It's a long run. Uh, we want to finish well. I was watching a track meet here a couple of weeks ago. It was a world, the world track meet. Uh, they have them in between the Olympics and things. People all over the world. It was in Budapest, Hungary. And there was a girl, I think she was a world record holder, they were running 
400. And she was leading, and she came down to about six feet from the finish line and stumbled and fell, and the two people passed her. She ran all the way, could just almost touch the finish line, and tripped and fell and lost it. A lot of people stumble and fall, don't, don't run it to the end. He said, I don't I want to run. I don't want to run in vain. Second thing, he said, I don't want to labor in vain. Anybody here, just give you an example. Say you want to plant a garden at your house. So you get up early Saturday morning, you get your rototiller out, you break up your ground and everything, you get it all plowed up the way you want it. Then you lay off your rows, and then you open it up, and you plant your seeds, and you work all day, and you've got your whole garden planted. And that night we get eight inches of flood, and it's just washed everywhere. You're going to feel, I labored in vain. You feel like everything I've done pretty much has been undone. Well, that's what Paul's trying to say here. I've traveled many miles to you people in Philippi. If you don't let God change you, I've done it all in vain. What a waste of labor, a waste of miles, a waste of a lot of things. I'm going to give you a scripture you've probably heard. It's in the book of Judges. I love the book of Judges. That's my favorite book in the Old Testament because I see it's a 300-something-year period, but it's a lot of things that look like today. But there was a woman judge raised up by God named Deborah, and Deborah was a good judge. And uh, she rallied the people because they were in a, a battle. Every time they would sin, God would let another nation come in there and overtake them, and they had to go into captivity and all this. It's just a continuous cycle. This time they were in a battle with the Canaanite under a king named Jabin. And Jabin had a general in his, that was the head of his army named Sisera. And they were coming against the Israelites. And the Israelites, Deborah rallied them, and they were all scattered, you know, living all throughout Cana there. And, and uh, she rallied them together, and all the Israelites come from the different tribes to fight against this guy. They were outnumbered, and they had superior weapons. The Canaanites had superior weapons. Sisera, he had an army, it says, of 900 iron chariots. The Israelites didn't have anything to match up with that. Anyway, God got involved in that and sent a bad rain, and all those chariots got bogged down in mud. And when they realized they were all bogged down in mud, then they all started running for their life. Their advantage was now gone. And Sisera, the great general of that army, he took off running too. They were running everybody, every man for himself. And he ran to a tent. There was a woman in that tent, and uh, he scared her and everything. And he said, look, I just want you to give me something to drink. And uh, he wanted some water, and she gave him some milk. And uh, she just said, uh, he said, I'm not going to hurt you. Uh, been in a battle and everything. Just need to rest a little bit. She said, why don't you take a nap? And I'll look. And if anybody's coming up here, I'll wake you up so you, nobody come up here and surprise you. He said, okay. And he laid down and took a nap. And she went and got a tent spike and drove it through his temple. He was dead as a door nail, I promise you. All right. But here's the, here's the thing about that story that's interesting. They made up a song about that. Deborah and all the people, and they sang this song. And in that song in, in Judges 5, 28, this is what they sing. The mother of Sisera 
looked out a, a window and cried through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariot? So what she's saying is his mama's looking for him to come home and he ain't coming home. She's wasting her time. It's in vain. She can look to eternity. Cicero won't ever come. That's in vain. That's what Paul's saying. Man, I don't want to work. I've done all this work in vain. I don't want to run these many miles in vain. I want you to let God change you. We have no excuse for not being changed by God. We have his authority. He said before he left, Jesus said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. We have his word. His word's forever settled in heaven. His word's quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. He can cut away the things in your life, the excess bone and fat in your life. He can cut it away if you'll let it, if you'll let the word do it. We've got his church. We've got each other to encourage, to strengthen, to teach, to grow together. We can be helping change each other. We've got his blood. His blood cleanses from every sin. We've got his spirit. He said, uh, the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, if it dwells in you, quicken your mortal body. You've got the power of God within you. We don't have any excuse for not being changed except that we don't allow him to do what he wants to do. He created this whole world in six days. But he said in Philippians 1, 6, the one that started a work in you is going to keep going on until the day of Christ Jesus. He said, I'm committing the rest of your life to changing you. Now, if he can do that in six days, look what he did with this universe. What in the world if he's committed himself to working many, many years in our life? We have no excuse. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't let all that he's done for you be in vain. I want you to stand with me. That's what we're going to be talking about, change. How does God change us? I want you, we got three or four minutes, I want you to spend some time here at the altar. You say, why you got to come down there? You don't have to, but you ought to. When you come to the altar, it's just a step of faith. You're saying, God, I'm just stepping out. I want you to change me. I want to see things in my life that's different. I don't want to walk like the old person I used to be. I don't want my mouth to be the same way it was. I don't want my testimony to be marred. So I'm going to invite you right now while I'm talking. You come on down. We're going to spend a little bit of time just saying, God, start with me. Start with me. This world is a crooked and a perverse generation. It's not going to get brighter and brighter. But we can get brighter and brighter the darker it gets. If God doesn't change us, all that he's provided for us will be in vain. And I'll say this, God wants to do something for us, but more than that, he wants to do something in us. And if he can't do anything in us, the things he does for us really means very little or nothing. Heavenly Father, you see our people. We're all on a journey. I pray everyone here has been born again. They've passed from death unto life. Old things have passed away and they're a new person. 
But God, we want to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. We want to walk in a way that people can see Jesus. We are different. We don't have to be hypocrites. We don't have to play a part or act a part. But they'll see a love that is supernatural. They'll see a faithfulness. They'll see a a kindness. They'll see a courage. They'll see a faith. They'll see things in us that we don't have to try to manufacture. It just comes from being in the presence of God in our life and allowing Him to change us on the inside. I pray for each one here, Lord, as we look to the days ahead, God, and the things that you're going to use to change us into the image of Christ will not do any good unless we participate in the change and allow you to work in us and us work it out in fear and trembling. Knock off the edges. Chip away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And may your church be without spot or wrinkle when the shepherd, the great shepherd comes back. May we truly be men and women walking uprightly in holiness and godliness in the midst of a dark world. Thank you, Lord. We're putting ourselves in the hands of the potter. Mold and make us after your will. We ask in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you.